This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in it and be glad in it. As we begin our service today, let us begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who makes wonderful promises. You pray, We praise you that you promise life, you promise peace, and you promise joy. You promise a world ruled by a perfect ruler who loves and cares for his subjects. Father God, we praise you that you are faithful to all of your promises. We praise you that you have the power to ensure that not a word of your promises ever fails to the, or falls to the ground. We praise you that even when men seek in their evil to obstruct your plans, you use their evil to bring your plans to fulfillment. We praise you that we can have complete confidence in all your promises, including the promise that one day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face in glory. Father, we praise you that you make your promises to those who do not deserve them. We praise you that though we have rejected your authority and refused to give thanks for your provision, you have promised your people an eternity under your perfect rule and a world full of abundance, a banquet of the best of meats and the finest of wines. We praise you that you have done what was necessary for these promises to come to fulfillment, that you have sent your Son to seal the covenant of your promises in his own blood, so that we may have confidence that, though our sins are scarlet, you will wash them white as snow. Father, we praise you that when we have received every blessing that you have promised, we will not rejoice so much in the glory of the world around us, but in the face and presence of your beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you that every blessing we receive from your hand is the overflow of the glories of your character. Father, we come before you also as your maker, as our maker and our judge, conscious of our rebellion against you, conscious that though you are our provider and our sustainer, we have to know that we reject you. Father, we confess that though we, you are the most glorious, the most beautiful, awesome thing in the universe, our hearts are cold to you and we consider knowledge of you cheap. Father, we confess that we do not do your will. We confess that throughout our lives, we reject what you have said to be good and embrace that which is evil. Father, as we consider that Jesus Christ was obedient unto death, we confess that at the smallest inconvenience of hardship or denial of pleasure involved in obedience, we quickly turn away from doing what pleases you. Sometimes even the effort of trying to understand whether or not something is your will is just too much trouble for us. We confess that if disobedience makes the slightest offer of pleasure or comfort, we too often take it, ignoring the promises of life that you have made to those who follow you. Please forgive us and change us that we might have hearts responsive to your word. Father, we confess that one of the ways we disobey you is in our lack of service toward others. 
we know that so often we refuse to relinquish our interests for the sake of others. Though we know that Christ was prepared to go to the cross in the service of us who deserve nothing of the kind, we are so often slow to lay aside our needs for the sake of others. We make excuses and we rationalize why our needs should come first, forgetting that the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to follow him as a servant. Father, as we consider our sin, we are sorry for how little we pray to you that sin might not reign in our hearts. How little we cry out to you for strength to resist sin in our lives. We pray that you would give us a greater concern for obedience so that we would pray daily for your strength to resist evil. We bring our hearts before you, Lord, full of evil and selfishness. And in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his bloodshed for our sake, we ask that you would hear our prayer. Have mercy on us, forgive us, cleanse us, and change us. For your name's sake, amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Our greetings I bring to you from God's house of salvation, where I am the co-pastor of this branch of Zion with my husband, Reverend David Gatlin, who's also co-pastor. We are in Washington, D.C., where our ministry reaches from one end of the earth to the other. And we thank God for the technology through digital and social media that we're able to reach people that are not close to us and that are close to us as well as far. As we begin to go into the service of our sermon today, let us think about this um, subject, self-control. How long, God? Self-control, which is still a part of our weekly um, Fruit of the Spirit series, and with that, we have the topic, How Long, God? And that is a capital, How Long, God? The scripture reading is coming from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That is in the New International Version. The second scripture of focus is coming from Psalms chapter 13, verse 1. How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. This is why... We are all having resistance. If you ever question, why is so much going on? What in the world is going on? Well, this is why you're having so much resistance. So listen carefully. We're talking about afflictions. We're talking about persecutions. We're talking about adversities. We're talking about having perseverance in the madness. We're talking about resignation and temptations in the big ball of confusion and madness and psychotic everything. To begin, as we go to scripture, let's lay the foundation out straight. First things first. As we look at the scripture that we read in Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews also is called the pistol uh, to the Hebrews, abbreviation Hebrews, anonymous New Testament letter traditionally attributed to St. Paul the Apostle, but now widely believed to be the work of another Jewish 
Christian. And there's always going to be some type of conflict because everybody wants to put their hand on the finished product. The letter was composed sometime during the latter half of the first century and is to the 19th book of the New Testament canon. To judge from its contents, the letter was addressed to a Christian community whose faith was faltering because of strong Jewish influences. To fortify Christian beliefs, the author describes the perfect priesthood of Christ, who, unlike the Jewish high priest, offered but one sacrifice as God's own son thereby redeeming all of humankind once and for all. The office of the Jewish high priest, by contrast, was filled by a temporary appointee whose imperfect sacrifice had to be repeated over and over. The author includes that Christianity is consequently superior to Judaism. Mm. As we should know, the Christians are then warned against hypocrisy and the fearful prospect of judgment that awaits those who have spurned the Son of God. And we'll find that in the chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. They are urged to persevere in their faith following the heroic examples of others well known to them. The emphasis on crisis, priestly meditation, and statements on faith and the Mosaic law are not typical of other Pauline writings. Indeed, there are more Old Testament citations in Hebrew than in any other New Testament book. They are drawn mainly from the Pentateuch and some Psalms. So that's the backdrop of everything. So as we look at the scripture of focus that we read earlier, prior verses refer to the extreme persecution suffered by heroes of the Christian faith. Near the end of chapter 11 in the same book, if Hebrews, it gives, it gives a long list of hardships, including torture, imprisonment, and horrific deaths. This list culminated in the examples of Jesus. And we can go to scripture, um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, which says, Fixing our eye on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured so much, so much opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Even though he was sinless, and we find that in chapter 4, verse 15. For we know, so for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And then there's God's incarnate, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. This is the one who imprinted with God's image, shimmering with his glory, sustains all that exists through the power of his word. He was sealed at the right hand of God once he himself had made the offering that purified us from all of our sins. It, just stay with me so this can make sense to you if you're kind of lost a little bit, but just stay with me. Just trust the process. If you just stay with the process, you will get to the promised land. Jesus experienced pain and suffering 
including an agonizing death. It only makes sense that God, by whom and for whom everything exists, would choose to bring many of us to his side by using suffering to perfect Jesus, the founder of our faith, the pioneer of our salvation. What this is saying is that here is God's Son, Creator, Sustainer, Great High Priest. Jesus has to take on our feeble flesh and suffer a violent death. He suffers for what we need. The point being made in this passage, particularly in future verses, is that worldly suffering is not a sign of God's displeasure. God uses these hardships that we have to train us to be more dependent on Him and more like Him. Next, in this book, it indicates that they, personally, have not yet been forced to shed blood for the sake of their faith. The writer of Hebrews might mean that these believers have not been martyred for professional, I'm sorry, for professing Christ. He might also mean that their persecution to that point was not as extreme as the examples given for those who came before, including Jesus. This point is meant to connect two ideas, one from the prior verse and one stated in the next verse. First of all, Jesus endured suffering and hardships, hardships, and he was able to do this without sin, as we find in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, and with, and with an attitude that trusted in, God's, uh, in God, and that's Hebrew chapter 12, verse 2 for reference. Secondly, Scripture indicates that God trains those he loves in order to strengthen them. These kind of hardships don't mean that God hates us. On the contrary, the fact that God gives us opportunity to strengthen our faith through our trials is a sign that his love and his concern are for us. Prior scripture in Hebrews chapter 12 verses 3 through 17 builds from a description of heroes of faith culminating in Jesus Christ. Those who came before were loved by God and honored by God, and yet they suffered hardships in the world. In this passage, the writer makes it very, very clear that soft suffering is often God's way to build us up and train us not necessarily a sign of his displeasure. Christians who respond to trials by seeking God in faith can avoid the fate of less faithful men like Esau. In chapter 11, it explains the victories of some of the Old Testament greatest heroes it also explains their sufferings and their persecutions. And in this chapter, it uses those examples as a cloud of witnesses to prove that God does not abandon us when we suffer. In many cases, he uses those same experiences to train us as if we were athletes to make us stronger. In other cases, is the same kind of discipline that a child receives from a loving parent. Unlike the old covenant, which rightly inspires fear and dread, the new covenant offers us peace. Remember Jesus says, I leave you my peace? As with any other matter of truth or falsehood, we should cling to what's true so that we can be part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what does this all mean to us? Worldly suffering 
is not a sign of God's displeasure. So get that out of your mind. God uses our hardships to train us to be more dependent on him and more like him. Get that into your mind. Our response to suffering are deeply personal and evoke strong emotions. The Bible offers us numerous examples that reveal not only the mystery of human suffering, but God's eternal perspective. In the psychological perspective for our total being, our mind, spirit, and our body, because our body follows everything else. To be a healthy mentally speak to be healthy mentally speaking, we must show that we're resilient in our day-to-day ups and downs. We must show that we're that we have we've had we have self-control when it feels like the rug is being pulled out from under us. When as many say bad things happen to good people, you know you've heard that many of us have, we are able to not conform to the madness and tragedies, but to be emotionally resilient using health, using help from healthy support and to not be dysfunction in reactive, in reactive, but to have a strong support system, a strong connection to our spiritual and to be able to work through with the help of our supports to overcome our stuff as we're making our way over our bridges of troubled water. The problem of suffering is definitely challenging, and people often wonder how a kind, loving God can allow suffering. And this is a common theme into my chaplaincy. How can God allow a kind, loving God allow suffering. Well, let's look at a few things the Bible says about suffering and how we should respond so that our faith can be built. There's so much throughout the word, the word of, of God to help us to endure. For time's sake, I'll give you scriptures as a point of reference, but not read them right out. You may want to either write them down or go back and read for yourself. Number one, suffering has many faces. There's just not one way to to, um, suffer. It has many faces, uh, faces. Christians can experience many troubles, mental, physical, emotional, or spiritual suffering. You can go to Psalms 34, verse 19. All Christians have or will suffer. Just go on over to John chapter 16, verse 33. And while you're at it, go to Acts chapter 14, verse 22. The Apostle Paul experienced various faces of suffering. Go on over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. Suffering can come because of foolish choices. We see this in Proverbs. Fools suffer harm, as said in chapter 3, 13, I'm sorry, in chapter 13, verse 20. And lazy people become hungry, as in chapter 19 and 15. Adulterers reap bad consequences, as in chapter 6, verse 32, and etc., While suffering can be a result of sin, all creation, even the righteous, will groan under the weight of sin and suffering. Romans, and we can find that in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 22 to reference all of that. Only in heaven is there no pain, no death, or grief. And we can go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. But we'll leave that for another time. This is a very, very tough one. Number two. Very, very tough. Suffering is not random. Suffering is not without purpose. God sovereignly uses circumstances to teach powerful lessons 
or accomplish his will. We see this in Joseph's tough circumstances in the Genesis chapter 37 verse 50. His suffering led to many people being rescued and we find that in chapter 50 verse 20 of the book of Genesis. Another example is Hosea's marriage to Gomer, an unfaithful woman. Hosea suffered as a as a demonstration of God's love. And that's Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. Suffering causes the biblically grounded believer to worship God, praising him providential hand and trusting his loving heart, even when the causes for hurtful circumstances are unclear. Tragedies are especially difficult to understand, but something sometimes God uses earthly calamities as agents of change, calling people to repentance. And we can reference that to the gospel according to Luke chapter 13, verse 4 through 5. Suffering should be should all suffering should all people to ask am i ready to meet god number three suffering touched our savior jesus in the flesh experienced weariness and other human weariness weakness he was a temp, he was tempted in every single way of mankind yet he was without sin in the midst of impending suffering, Jesus' example was, Not my will, but yours be done. And we find that, we can reference that in the Gospels, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And actually I have here, Luke chapter 22, verse 42. Jesus said his people would follow in his footsteps. And that would include suffering. And we can go to John chapter 15, verse 20. He left us an example of how to suffer in 1 Peter 2, verse 19 and 21. He said his followers will be blessed when they, when they faithfully endure suffering for his name's sake. And that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. Paul deeply desired to share in Christ's sufferings. And we can reference that to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. The author of salvation entered fully into suffering and emergence, victorious over it. The ultimate answer to suffering was at the cross when Jesus declared, it is finished, as in the gospel according to John chapter 19, verse 30. Our suffering as we follow him has purpose, and it will come to an end. Let us remember the suffering is myster mysterious and pervasive. Christ's followers know only in part many of the mysterious purposes of God. But it's clear how suffering began. Satan is the author of sin. And suffering came on mankind as a result of Adam's sin. Because of that choice, the curse of sin pervades all creation. Humans have a sin nature. That's why you do what you do. What you do, what you do. But people also... But people also are sinners because of their choices. That's why you do what you do what you do. Galatians 6 verse 8 brings that out. Suffering because of sin is a tragic part of all human life. Though no trial can separate the Christian from Christ's love, the mystery of suffering is very real. Remember David felt this struggle when he asked, how long will we hide will you hide your face from me? He said that in Psalms chapter 13 verse 1. See, sin separates us from God, as in Isaiah 59 verse 2, and the believer keenly feels this loss of fellowship when dealing with a sin. 
And let's not forget, suffering can be a battlefield. It can be a monster. Some suffering comes because of a battle of the believer's allegiance, as in the case of Job. He wasn't aware of the conversation between God and Satan that set up the battle. He d didn't question God's sovereignty, but he did agonize over things he couldn't understand. Satan still comes to us in times of uncertainty or suffering, tempting to doubt God. It's all about doubting God. In this arena of welfare, warfare, I should say warfare, not welfare, we, God's children, can either curse God because of suffering or trust him in the midst of trials as Job did. So, now that our suffering teaches us to seek and trust God, the psalmist said his afflictions were good because they made him more faithful and taught him God's commands. Resting in scripture, Christians can learn to, or we can re can learn to respond to suffering in godly ways. They can trust God in their anger, or we can trust God in our anger. When we sin against him and learn, or we can learn to forgive. All who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And just know that, and you know this man, that you will be persecuted. We find that in 2 Timothy verse. Three, chapter 3 verse 12 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 but even in times of mistreatment or in persecution we can seek God we can find his blessing and give a powerful 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 testimony for Christ God sometimes will allow things that are undeserved such as disease and disabilities to display his marvelous work. An example of this is the healing of the man blind from birth. That's in the Gospel according to John, chapter 9, verse 1 through 3. Jesus said the man's blindness was to show the works of God through his healing. Lazarus' sickness was for the glory of God, and Jesus would also receive glory. When Lazarus died, this gave Jesus the opportunity to encourage faith. He said, Did I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? Paul's suffering, well, his thorn in the flesh tormented him, but he found in weakness the opportunity to boast of Christ's power. That's why we have, I can do all things through Christ. That strengthens me. And know this. When we as Christians suffer, people are watching us. And Christians' intent in times of suffering should be to honor God. Paul said when we share Christ's sufferings, we can rejoice when, we, when his glory is revealed. And you can reference that. Take that to the bank. That's first. Peter chapter 4 verse 12 through 13. Through Christ or through Jesus, suffering prepares us for greater glory. We don't like suffering. Nobody likes suffering. And we try to avoid it at all costs. We check and balance everything so that we don't suffer. But it happens to us all. But Paul says that the Christian to the Christians, light and momentary troubles achieve for them greater joy and eternal glory that outweighs anything that we suffer. In a sense, suffering for Jesus proves the believer's faith. The Christ follower suffers for Jesus' sake, and it is conformed to his image, places all hope in him. Trusting that all things work together for his purpose and enters into the freedom and glory of sonship for all eternity.
and the justified, sanctified believer will be glorified in heaven. And this should cause Christians to rejoice. So when suffering proves the genuineness of the Christian's faith, proves the genuineness of our faith, this results in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now let's just turn on over to the book of Revelations. We react, I mean, we've reached the climax of the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is nothing more clearly stated in the Bible than the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. His coming again to the earth will be visible, will be literal, will be physical, and will be very glorious. The second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth is clearly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. It is mentioned in 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, the second coming of Jesus Christ is mentioned 318 times during Jesus Christ's lifetime at his first coming he referred to his second coming 22 times so added good news for us the second coming of Jesus Christ is the climax and the consummation of humanity history so I want you to plaster this scripture somewhere and everywhere. Keep it close to your inner spirit and your eyes. It is your medication, your meditation, your stabilizer, your balance in the rocky. It is your come up when you're down, when you fall. It's your very present help in times of psychotic delusional, uncomprehensible experiences. Jesus, with almighty power, will keep the devil from deceiving mankind, and he has hereunto done. He never wants power and instruments to break the power of Satan. Christ shuts by his power and seals by his authority. The church shall have a time of peace and prosperity, but all her trials are not yet over. Now remember I told you about Revelations in chapter 19, verse 11 through 16. And it reads like this, And I saw heaven open up, and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war his eyes are a flame of fire and on his head and many diams he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god and the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the wine press and the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings. Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, Apostle John saw heaven open and observed the rider on the white horse. The rider is identified using names such as fearful and true, and that is good news for us. The earlier rider of a white horse seen by John in chapter 6 was given no such description. The writer in Revelation chapter 19 verse 11 is none other than Lord Jesus Christ 
who identified himself to the church in Laosia as the faithful and true witness. Celebrate that the coming in this context. Celebrate Christ is faithful and avenge the death of the martyrs and to keep his promises. He promised to come again and true to his word, he will come to earth a second time at the, at the close of tribulation. Because he is all-knowing, nothing escapes his attention. Jesus knows all about us. He knows our enemies. He knows our injustices. He knows our immorality. And he knows the blasphemy. And he judges them rightly. He goes to war for all of us and celebrate this know that in the ancient roman world victorious generals would ride white horses in a victory parade their legions will follow them and drag their captives behind them so approximately appropriately jesus the believers our commander-in-chief rides a white horse as he returns to earth the description which follows emphasizes Christ's absolute, um, absolute majesty, his absolute power, and his absolute victory. Let us celebrate Jesus' victory. Christ returns to earth at the close of tribulation. At his first coming to earth, Jesus appeared as a baby and, sacrifice, and sacrificial savior. This time, he will arrive as a king of kings and lord of lords. Many prior scriptures prophesied this day of victory. And we have many countless scriptures that mention that. Christ arrives in a blaze of glory, uh, obliterating his enemies single-handedly at the head of the armies of heaven. The Antichrist and the false prophet become the first to take cast in the lake of fire, ushering in the beginning of Christ's millennial reign on earth. Now stay with me. Not done yet. Now if you're having problems with all of this, your difficulty understanding all of this is just a little bit too much for you. It's still good. It's okay. Still keep celebrating. I want you to close your eyes and envision this. This is going to be your spiritual meditation. And we're going to, it all begins with the gospel according to John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Once we have this, go over, let us go over and meditate on Revelation 20. And this is the entire story. So keep your eyes closed and just meditate on this. This is Apostle John talking. Then I saw the angel who was coming down from heaven. He had the key to the deep hole. He also held a great chain in his hand. He took hold of the dragon. That dragon is really the devil of Sa or Satan. He is the snake who has been there since long ago. The angel tied up the dragon with a chain. Nobody could undo that chain for a thousand years. Then he threw the dragon into the deep hole. He closed the door to the deep hole and he locked it with the key. He put a seal on the door. During that time, Satan did not tell any more lies to the people of all countries. But after a thousand years have passed, he must go free for a short time. Still keep your eyes closed and meditate. Then I saw some thrones, and I saw people who were sitting on them. Those people have, had received authority to judge other people. I also saw the spirits of people who had died because they served Jesus. Their heads were cut off because they had spoken the truth, messages about Jesus. 
they had continued to believe God's message. These believers had not worshipped the wild animals or his idols. They had not received the wild animals mark on the front of their heads or on their hands. Now they became live again. They ruled as kings together with Christ for a thousand years. But all the other dead people did not come alive again until 1,000 years had finished. This is the first time that God would raise up dead people to come again alive. The people that God raises up to become alive again that first time are very happy people. They are God's own people. The second death has no power over them. Instead, they will be priests who serve God and Christ. They will rule as kings with him for those years. Now God sends Satan into the lake of fire. As we meditate on God sending Satan into the lake of fire, think on this. When the thousand years had passed, God will let Satan go free out into his, from his prison. Satan will then go and tell lies to people in all the countries and all over the world. He will make them believe him. He will actually make people believe him. They call those countries Gog and Magog. Satan will bring them together to fight a war against God's people. Very many people will be in Satan's army. There will be as many as the bits of sand on the shore of the sea. They will go across the whole earth. They will arrive at the place where God's people are living. They will stand all around that place in that city that God loves. But fire will come down from heaven and it will destroy them all. The devil had caused those people to believe his lies. So God would throw him into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That is the lake where he has already thrown the wild animal and the false prophets. As a result, they will have a lot of pain all day and all night. It will never finish. God judges all the people, all the dead people. When I saw a great white throne and God was sitting on it, the earth and the sky rushed away from where he was. There was a, no longer any place for them. Then I saw the people who had died. They were standing in front of the gray throne. Important people were there, and unimportant people were there also. Then someone opened books to see what was written in them. God had written in them all the things in the, all the people had done. Then someone opened another book, which is God's book of life. God judged those people who had died. He looked on the books to see what had been done. The sea brought up all the dead people who were in it. Death and the dead people's place, called Hades, brought up all the dead people who were there too. Then God judged each person. God saw what they had done, and he decided what was right. Then God threw death in Hades and to the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death for people. God threw into the lake of fire anyone whose name was not written in the book. I don't know about you. I know that I know. Trust, be resilient in knowing with full confidence that the I am to my what, my why, in my how. God is my trigger in all times of my life. God is my first and only that I go to when I am deep 
and then deep excruciating maladaptive spaces. God is my first, during, and after. As my family left me legacy, God is the legacy that I leave for my family and to all that God gives me to write to and to and to speak to, to help them to grow close and will and will be their security beyond a lifetime. Jesus, um, there's a popular song in the 90s that was written by B.B. Um, Winans and a couple of other people, Harm's Way. The lyrics are so beautiful. Uh, it says, Underlying love you've given to me, seen in him things I would never have seen. I don't understand why you care so much. It's all a mystery. Time and time again, I ask myself, what have I done to deserve such wealth? The price you paid, I could never repay generously. And the next line said in the song, it says, When I was down, you came and lifted me. When I was bound, yes, you set me free. Things that you do makes it clear to me. It's all a master plan. Oh, no greater love that I've come to know. And when I refuse, you still love me so. With open arms, you came and rescued me and erased all the pain. Yes, all the pain. And then it goes on to say, What kind of love would place itself and risk your life for love's sake? What kind of love just takes all the blame? It seems to be so easy. It hurts sometimes, but you never let go. You will be, you will, you will to love in spite of all you know. You know, you know. Then the chorus of this whole beautiful song, the lyric says, In wanting to save me in order to save the day, because of love you placed yourself in harm's way. It's truly beyond me, left without a word to say. What kind of love would place itself in harm's way? What kind of love would really place itself in harm's way? What a question, everyone that is listening to this, that he is. We're talking about Jesus, the advocate, Jesus, the almighty, Jesus, the alpha and the omega, Jesus, the amen, Jesus, the apostle of our profession, Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, Jesus, who is the author of life, Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus, who is the author of salvation. Jesus, the beginning and the end. The blessed and the only ruler. The bread of God. The bread of life. And on and on and on. Have a blessed and beautiful day in the Lord. And remember that we have a place to go. We have someone that listens to us and cares for us. And when we're in harm way, harm's way, that we do have a way out. Amen.